feel free to stretch out for a moment. Jenny, maybe when you have a chance to turn the upper two lights on a little more. Welcome back, everyone. Sorry to miss most of you last week. As it turns out, I sent an email. Maybe some of you already saw it, but we did end up meeting last week. Uh, even though uh, it was officially canceled, uh, about 10 people showed up, so we decided just to have the group. It was really nice. At least I thought so. Um, but it just the road seemed dangerous. I didn't want to encourage people to be driving. So that's what happened, and we didn't record it. So there's no record. (laughs) I thought we could take a little time, um, maybe right now, to talk about concentration. I'd like to spend most of the time I have on equanimity and then still have time for small groups at the end of the evening, as we normally do on week eight. So tonight's the last night for the class on the seven factors. And... We'll start our class on integrity, or sila, ethical conduct, um, two weeks from tonight. So you can sign up for that in the entranceway if you haven't yet. So any comments or maybe take five or ten minutes, comments or questions about, equi- or about concentration. And, uh, and in particular, you know, we're, we mostly have been working with the seven factors in a linear Way and to really, you know, as is often emphasized in Buddhism, understanding cause and effect. How when we track things mindfully, it just becomes obvious that sometimes the mind is skillful and sometimes it's not. And it inspires an investigation like, oh, what actually works? What actually causes problems? And the more we investigate, the more we kind of get a sense of what is skillful and what isn't skillful. And that inspires commitment or effort because we feel like we have something to commit. I understand if I do this, I get screwed. My mind gets entangled. I relate this way. Things work pretty well. And that sense of commitment, the willingness to put forth effort naturally arises. And remember, as we understand the seven factors... We have to understand them in an impersonal way instead of in terms of something I have to do. Otherwise, we're not understanding them deeply. So the commitment arises out of a deeper understanding of skillfulness and unskillfulness. And the more full that commitment, that the the exact result of being fully committed means the mind isn't dispersed. It isn't fragmented. So joy begins to arise. And the joy extinguishes sort of a mental agitation. It's like uh, we have what we want and the mind or heart begins to relax into tranquility and ease of contentment because 
like in uh, jhanic factors that talk about pity, joy, um, the cause for aversion to leave the mind. Because aversion is when we don't like what's going on, but when there's a lot of joy, there's no reason, there's no place for aversion. And the absence of aversion leads to the settling of tranquility. And uh, when the heart feels content and relaxed, the mind is willing to become still. It finds a stillness. And that stillness uh, is the cause for more energy to build, but it's not dissipated at all. So the mind becomes really bright, shiny, but still. And it has a, you know, um, the more you look and invite in these seven factors, it will become very clear, these different seven factors. Our concentration will be clear. It will be a distinct mental experience of stillness that you can feel any time of day, even in the midst of activity. It's just a question of how strong it is and whether it's the dominant factor or a factor more in the distance. And of course, even though we're learning the seven factors in a linear way, the more we're familiar with them, the more they've been watered with mindfulness, paying attention, being interested, committed. They're just available. You know, and you don't have to sort of work through the line. The mind can, for whatever reason, be interested in concentration, recognize it, and recognizing it with mindfulness, with interest, with commitment, with joy, with tranquility, with equanimity, concentration blossoms. Just like any of the factors would blossom if we relate to them in a wholesome way. And I've been saying over and over again during the last weeks just how important it is to have enough faith or confidence that these qualities actually do map out our mind, our natural mind, that we're willing to look and, in a sense, uh, have some expectation that they're there. I mean, not an not a expectation in a negative sense, but we're looking with some confidence, not looking with, oh, it's not there anyway, why bother? <laughs> so when I say expectation, it's just to balance out the tendency that, we don't think there's calm. We don't think there's concentration. We don't think there's equanimity. We don't think there's interest or joy or effort or mindfulness. So we're not going to see it. And then in that stillness, the interesting thing about that stillness is it uh, the mind... Uh, Begins to begin sort of a flip from an external, or we could say an orientation towards what's pleasant and unpleasant, toward the stillness itself. It loses its addiction to pleasantness and unpleasantness. And that's the birth of equanimity. So the, the concentrated mind becomes, in a sense, such a beautiful thing, such an entrancing thing that there's a, a, a you know a fundamental switch goes off in the mind where 
the mind loses its worldly orientation, which means its attraction to pleasantness, its aversion to unpleasantness, because it's resting in the stillness. It's, it's taking this up as its God, not the God of getting pleasant experiences and getting rid of unpleasant experiences. And so then our relationship, the mind's relationship to the world changes. And, and there's that distinct kind of cool, uh, impartial uh, perspective. Whatever object we might bring to mind, it doesn't have the same pull. It doesn't feel the same. And this is another thing that, again, don't think of this in some and only in profound ways. But just to notice the presence of equanimity, even when it's not, uh, you know, mind-blowing. But just a, a, the, the kind of coolness that we can have around experience. You might be feeling a little cold tonight. But now after the sit with the mind more in balance with the seven factors, the seven factors more alive, it's like there's sort of a dispassionate relationship to the coolness of the body. It's not a problem. Or you might, it might occur to you that, you know, uh, your busy day is over and tomorrow's going to be easy. But the mind relates to that thought with equanimity. The whole future, the whole past is held in a lighter way. This is really the experience of equanimity. It's a, a quiet confidence. And it's not that we're unaware or disconnected from the world. You know, that would be the near enemy of equanimity, this sort of being distant. So it's actually just the opposite. It's we're present, connected, and we understand what the world can offer, you know, pleasant experiences and unpleasant experiences. But equanimity understands that it's always frustrating. <laughs> you know, so if we think of a pleasant, th- uh, pleasant thing or bring to mind an unpleasant thing, you know, from the point of view of equanimity, there's like, don't want to chase that stuff. Just happy to rest in the moment, in the vibrant, alive presence. And let life be what it is. Let the world be what it is. In a way, um, equanimity, you know, it's both a quality of love. And I think the, the way equanimity arises as a quality of love is this full commitment I mean, full connection. You know, equanimity, when, we, when the heart is impartial, it's able to really connect and rest with the object. And that's like love. But the other part of equanimity is more like wisdom. And uh, it's, it's as if the self disappears. Having seen things coming and going, having seen the lawfulness, the powerful lawfulness of things coming and going, the mind understands chasing doesn't go anywhere. Trying to control doesn't go anywhere. It's like the 
traditional equanimity phrase for the uh, when you're doing equanimity as the Brahma Vihara, one of the divine abodes. Get it written down here. All beings are owners of their karma, owners of their actions. Their happiness and unhappiness depend upon their actions, not upon my wishes for them. All beings are owners of their karma. Their happiness and unhappiness depend upon their actions, not upon my wishes for them. So this is true for us. It's true for anybody we bring to mind. As we look out into the world, you know, the world of experience, we understand this is the world of, of causes and conditions and happiness and unhappiness, good events, not so good events, pleasant events, unpleasant events. That is all the natural unfolding, the lawful unfolding of actions of the previous causes and conditions. So there's a disenchantment or a dispassion. So I'll have, I have a few more things to say about equanimity, but I meant to stop sooner just to give people a chance to ask questions or share some reflections about concentration. And then I'll spend a few more minutes after that uh, talking about equanimity and then we'll break into small groups. But any questions about concentration as one of the factors? How it distinguishes itself from the others? Or comments from your own experience that you'd like to share with the group? Yeah, Jonathan. Well, I don't think it's necessarily the complete dropping of judgment. Depends, too, what you mean by judgment. Because that part of the mind that discriminates... Yeah, that part of the mind that discriminates pleasant and unpleasant doesn't need to go away and probably couldn't go away. But the way we relate to it can change dramatically. And when I'm feeling needy, then I put a lot of emphasis on pleasantness and unpleasantness. And if, if, you know, the half and half is gone from the fridge and I want to make a cup of cocoa, it's a big deal, you know. But when I'm, I'm not so tight and my mind's more expansive and the factors are more alive and in balance, then I still recognize the absence of the half and half. It's still an unpleasant experience to know that I can't have that you know, that taste treat, but it doesn't, the mind doesn't relate to it, doesn't take it so personally, like a personal insult that we're out of that, personal insult that the weather's cold, or personal, you know, um, attribute of mind that something good has happened too, how we take those things personally and, and almost like we're extracting some personal satisfaction out of it, out of some pleasant event. So that's what shifts. It's more our relationship to the world of good and bad. 
Not so much that that mind, the, that part of the mind isn't able to discriminate good and bad. Jan, did you have a thought? Yeah, and I think he used the word attachment to be provocative because, you know, it's <laughs> this is what Buddhist meditation teachers, not me, but <laughs> it seems like the more senior people, it's like this is how their minds act out. It's the very subtle ways. They're kind of doing jabs at people who teach from other perspectives. Um, so that that's my sense of it, you know. There is, a, there is this very beautiful little war going on between the Theravadan teachers that emphasize calm and jhana and those that emphasize more the wisdom side of practice. And so they play with each other by <laughs> these little kind of statements about how um, tranquility is worthy of attachment. But I think the point is, I think it's a really good point, nonetheless. And um, the way I understand it, that when we get, when we allow the mind to like tranquility, that it draws us in, like we want more of it. But actual attachment prevents the tranquility from developing. What allows for tranquility to develop is more and more letting go, and uh, or calm, or any you know the deeper states, deeper balanced states of mind, is letting go. So. That's why it's appropriate to say something provocative like it's, you know, everybody should be attached to tranquility um, because it will tease out anything that's unwholesome. You know, I probably wouldn't use the word attachment just so it doesn't get confused, but to appreciate it as a wholesome state, to be committed to it, you know, to um, allow the mind to orient around it and to understand how it develops, how it ceases to be, you know, how it falls away from the mind. And so you can experiment like you can invite in tranquility. You can orient the mind toward tranquility. Like if you find some sense of calm or ease, you know, by naming it and liking it, you can experiment if it develops. And what actually allows for its blossoming in the mind and what gets in the way. Because there is, a, there is a certain place for calling it out, you know, among the many different qualities in the mind, being able to recognize it and to call it out, I like you. I see you as wholesome. You know, you're really good. That, that I think, is appropriate, at least initially, as we're sort of getting to know it and uh, being able to sort of access it to sort of name it and to recognize, I'm really happy you're here. I mean, because there is a happiness about tranquility. We're happy that it's there. The mind is happy to see it. (laughs) Other thoughts about tranquility and concentration? Yeah, Roger.
Yeah, I think the, this, you brought up a couple points, and I think they, they should be addressed. Like one is how does the anchor fit into this, the development of these seven factors, and in particular concentration? So, um, in a way, the, the, the anchor, like the sensations just below the nostrils, if that's what you use, or the belly, or w- just whatever's predominant, but whatever you're allowing the attention to go to, in a way, is, um, is a condition we're using experience, whether it's the breath specifically or whatever is predominant in the moment. We're using experience and the, the continuity of attention, of mindful attention to experience to develop, perfect these seven factors. And so when we, like if you're using the breath and you bring your attention there, you, you, you know, you have the intention to be mindful of the breath at the nostrils, let's say, and you're interested in that. But even though you're, in a sense, focusing on the breath, uh, the, the development of that mindfulness of breathing is more about understanding these seven factors than it is about the breath itself. And inevitably, at some point, the meditation is more about the balance of the mind or the arising and balance of these seven factors than it is about the actual seven, uh, about the actual sensations. But that doesn't mean you're dropping the awareness of the sensations at the nostrils. But that what's really, it's just sort of a, a skillful means to support the arising, the development of these seven factors, the mind coming into balance. So, the focus on the actual object, on the present moment object, is uh, it's not different than the concentration. It's just a question if, if you're focusing on the breath or you're focusing on the mind being concentrated on the breath. They're really not two different things. And actually, it's good to see the connection. You know, it's like the mind that's knowing the breath can actually be distinguished from the breath that's being known. Does that make sense? Does that help kind of get at what you were... Mm-hmm. Yeah, but that doesn't. But that stillness doesn't mean. Well, I mean, maybe in, in deeper states of jhana, this is another one of those debates. Whether in the deeper absorptions, the Buddha meant that sense experience is so retreated that people are literally not aware of the five physical senses. And some people say yes, and some people say no. So it's another debate. I don't know that experience of the senses not being accessible. So I can't <laughs> take that other point of view. But, you know, from my experience with deeper states of concentration is that the world of sense experience for sure retreats. It's distant. So s- sights, sounds, smells, tastes, and touches retreat. And what dominates is the experience of the mind itself. And then when the mind's concentrated, then it's the concentration that really dominates 
the mind. It d- dominates the sort of field of uh, the field of awareness. That's what the awareness, the mind that knows, is knowing. It's knowing the mind, and it's just a question. You know, the debate is like how distant is the world of physicality at that at that point. Um, and you know, of course, the real question uh, clearly. I can imagine people being completely, you know, not at all connected. I mean, that seems clear that that's possible. But the question is, is that necessary to develop insight? And, uh, you know, the more distant the world is so that all the mind is knowing is the concentrated mind, the still concentrated mind. Uh, It's very, very healing. Because the mind, when we're aware of the five senses and thought, the mind is being impinged upon by, you know, by those multiple sense experiences, moment by moment by moment. It's triggering all kinds of reactivity. Even if we have enough wisdom not to get lost in the reactivity, we're still being, the mind is being provoked. So when the mind withdraws into awareness of the mind itself, and the world of the five senses is very withdrawn. It's deeply healing. The mind not being agitated is deeply healing. So when the world comes back into focus, you know, we're now becoming, this concentration is falling apart and the mind is now hearing and seeing and having thoughts and feeling the body, feeling sensation. Then, then now it, it will... Uh, the sensation, for example, in the body, it will still be understood as pleasant or unpleasant, but any kind of reactivity will feel so harsh, so like, um, you know, next to the, the, late, the sort of reverberation of the stillness of the concentration, it will just seem so gross. Any kind of aversion and greed just stands out as being really gross. Not in a negative sense, but like really overkill, like really big. And so that's how that really supports insight because mostly we don't, it, we don't discern or we don't pick up our aversion and our greed. It's just so commonplace in our mind that it doesn't, when we're aversive and, you know, we just slap the mosquito or greedy and just grab a couple more of those coconut macaroons that somebody left from Sunday. <laughs> Um, it doesn't even occur to us that we're being greedy. But, but it, when the mind has been refreshed and there's a lot of stillness, then that greed and aversion stand out like, oh, you know, it's like, like pollution. You know, I really, do I really want to make a mess of this? Is there another way? Anything else? And that's why, you know, there's sort of two supports for uh, for equanimity that the reverberation of that stillness of of concentration and tranquility, it provides a temporary immunity from greed and aversion because the, the aftertaste of stillness and tranquility is the mind is still in a sense orienting toward that, taking that for its, um, you know, that's what it's interested in. 
so it's not so drawn back into its likes and dislikes. So that's what we'd call like temporary equanimity, having experienced a lot of pleasantness, especially the inner states of pleasantness. I mean, this is even true if you have a really good meal and then somebody offers you something delicious, you know, you have a lot of equanimity because you don't, you know, you're not so attracted to likes and dislikes in that moment um, as opposed to, you know, if you were hungry. And this is the same thing, except in a more profound way, if we've really been satisfied, deeply satisfied by an inner state of happiness, then we're not that attracted to anything in the world or even that afraid of anything in the world for a while to some degree. So that's one of the causes of of equanimity. And then the other is will arise out of insight. So, like I mentioned, if we have a deep state of concentration, whether we did it sort of in a traditional like concentration meditation (coughs) or we've just had a a lot of continuity of mindfulness, which is another way to develop deep states of concentration. So the mindful, 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 fully connecting with each moment and the mind starts to get, the concentration starts to get brighter and stronger. Now, it won't be as deep as a a sort of a, a concentration practice, but the concentration can still be quite strong. And then what we start seeing with that stillness of mind, with that balance of mind, is we see how ephemeral everything is. We see how impersonal it is. We see so clearly that grasping hurts. And so this leads to a more permanent kind of equanimity because we understand deeply that phenomena are fundamentally ungraspable. Can't grasp them anyway. Can't claim them this sort of claiming or trying to extract something from it actually doesn't work in the way we imagine it works. It's like we think it works to go have a delicious meal. We think it's a way to be happy, right? Or going home and crawling into bed. I bet all of us to some degree imagine that is going to really lead to happiness. Not that we think it's going to be forever happiness. But what we don't realize, if we were more mindful, more clear, the mind more balanced, we'd see that whatever we're going to get when we crawl into bed is simply the flip side of not liking this moment as it is. So what we've done is we've created some suffering because we're not in bed and that's going to go away when we get into bed. Or we create some suffering because we don't have the food we want to eat And then when we do get the food we want to eat, it goes away. So we don't actually get satisfied by worldly experience. We simply extinguish the agitation that we've created ourselves in the mind. And you can just look at this in your life. Now, our relative experience is that we do get satisfied because we're oblivious to the craving or the fear that we're constructing moment by moment in our minds. So it really does feel like when we do this or get that or get rid of this, that we're taking care of ourselves and making sort of uh, making us ourselves happy. 
Now, it doesn't mean that we wouldn't feed ourselves or we wouldn't go to bed, you know, cover up and things like that if we have a lot of equanimity. But when we have a lot of this inner happiness, then we have a lot of inner happiness and equanimity. So we'll put ourselves into bed, we'll feed the body, but all of a sudden our motivation isn't about being happy or being peaceful because we're already happy and peaceful. So then the interesting question is, well, why does somebody do something if they're feeling a lot of happiness or a lot of this inner happiness, a lot of this equanimity? And I, and I guess really it's for us to discover, but it seems to me, you know, in my limited experience that, that the motivation is love and taking care of things. And there's no reason not to do those things either. You know, what would be the reason not to feed the body if there's food available? What would be the reason not to put the body into bed at the end of the day? So it's, uh, there's a lightness that comes out of love and just sort of participation in the flow of life, like a giving oneself over to life as it is. Of course, there's so much more that we could uh, look at in terms of equanimity and concentration, but I want to save time so people can uh, have a nice uh, last small group meeting before the course ends. And just a couple thoughts you can reflect on now as I review them that you might bring up. Of course, anything from the class would be appropriate. Anything that seems important to you to bring up is probably relevant to bring up. But just some different aspects specifically about equanimity that might make sense that uh, you might have something to share in the small group. One is the uh, connection when we see more and more how lawful life is, experiences, like how things unfold. Uh, it can be a sense of awe, like how amazing that things are the way that they are. And this is a flavor of equanimity. Uh, We had a lot of fun in August, people who were coming to the Sunday and Wednesday practice groups, looking at Sharon, uh, at Sylvia Burstein's chapter in her book on the Ten Paramis. She just has a sentence that we read over and over uh, about that. I'll just read. It really kind of brings up this feeling of awe in terms of equanimity. To perfect my equanimity, I need to accept every experience into my awareness. I cannot refuse to pay attention. Refusing itself, the mind tensing in withdrawal, is suffering. And turning the mind away, refusing to look, would preclude complete and clear seeing. When my mind greets all moments with equal respect, it maintains stature enough to see that causal connection set everything set every experience into its lawful time and place, that everything is always breathtakingly the only way that it can be. My heart resting in equanimity can respond with compassion. So that's one flavor that might make sense to you. Another I mentioned in the talk about the connection between love and equanimity and this line from Rumi, Translation of one of Rumi's 
um, poems. Equanimity brings peace to loving. Equanimity brings peace to loving. So that, uh, you know, love mostly is tainted with attachment or fear. So how, you know, any experiences in your life where the quality of love was deep and resonant didn't have that sort of wiry, worrisome quality. Uh, Like it needs protection. You know, remember, maybe hopefully, everybody remembers time when we didn't feel like we had to protect the love or maintain it. It was it was very dependable and not a function of what anybody else was doing. You know, it was its own thing. So that's something you could share. You could talk about the near enemies of equanimity, indifference, or any kind of reactivity. You could talk about uh, this wisdom aspect of equanimity, the image the Buddha used. Uh, many of you know these times the Buddha would use the earth as a simile for equanimity, being like the earth, the earth that receives all things. So just times in your life where you had that earth-like quality unmoved by the different winds, the different circumstances in your life, that feeling of being sort of protected no matter what insults or things came, came and went. And then the last thing I mentioned is just the equanimity arising out of calm. So when you have been sated with pleasantness, wholesome pleasantness, then noticing the effect on the mind for a while, the temporary effect. You know, even coming back from a vacation, a really nice vacation, and just having some immunity to traffic or irritating people in your life or things like that for a while. And that would be something you could talk about too. So I think we need to count by 12. I think we have 36 or 35 people tonight. You want to start, Scott? One, two, three, four, five, six, Good. So, um, one and two in the office, and somebody from group one can take my keys. And three, four, and five in the community room. Six and seven in the lobby. Eight by Doug. Nine, ten, eleven, and twelve in the middle of the room. Okay? And anybody in earshot, I'll keep time. Otherwise... Find a timer for the group. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.